our trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You ready to uh, revel in some wrong think? Because I got plenty of it for you today. And as always, it's brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, Borelli.com, and TMCPNation.com. I actually want to kick things off with a, with a thought from C.S. Lewis. And I don't know why this one, this one jumped out at me. It spoke to me. It just said, somebody needs to hear this. Now, I might be the somebody who needed to hear this. But uh, it, it really gave me a little nudge and a little, uh, I don't know, this was like a little spiritual vitamin that gave me strength. Here's the quote. Hardships are often, I'm sorry, let me try that again. Hardships often prepare ordinary people for an extraordinary destiny. Now, I know none of us is like, oh, cool, hardship. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so excited that I can go through this hardship. Yay. <laughs> I, I don't feel that way either. However, I, have, I think there's great truth in what C.S. Lewis is pointing out here. And I think that it's, it's the kind of thing that we need to be open to. And that is, you know, when, when hard things happen to us, and it can take any number of different forms. I've, I've been amazed at the variety of different hardships that, <laughs> that actually can appear in our lives. And, you know, it's, sometimes it's easy to take it personal. Oh, the universe hates me. God is angry at me. He's punishing me. Oh, you know, and, and we get into that victim mindset where, you know, it's, it's all about uh, something's trying to make me miserable. It's very rare that you'll find people who actually can look at this kind of situation and look at the hardship and say, okay, going to be honest. I'm not enjoying this. This is not fun. Maybe you want to just come right out and say, this sucks and I don't like it. But it's preparing me in ways that good times and comfort and ease of life absolutely couldn't. Now, that doesn't mean that you're a masochist if you welcome hardship. It just means you understand. Look, it's, hard times are going to come. We live in a world that is governed by certain laws and rules that mean that uh, bad things can happen, even to good people, even to people who absolutely do not deserve something bad to happen to them. But when you look at it from the standpoint of if this hardship is preparing me or toughening me up or helping me develop empathy for, for others in, in some cases, for an extraordinary destiny, suddenly that hardship becomes a lot easier to bear. I hope this makes sense. In fact, probably, I, I'm guessing chances are good you understand this better than I do. But it took me a long, long time to recognize that, you know, you can try as you want to avoid hardship. If you live long enough, though, you're going to go through it. You're going to live in interesting times. You're going to be challenged. Sometimes, you know, they're personal battles that nobody else knows about. Sometimes it's big things that everybody is feeling. But I say what I'm about to say next with, with the absolute confidence. I believe that uh, you have an extraordinary destiny. I don't think it's an accident that you are where you are in this time and space 
and and in your circle of of influence or your orbit of of influence, I think that you're there because there's a difference that you can make, that you will make if you choose to. I got to first of all tell you, I'm very honored to to be part of of that, uh, to to be within your orbit. I don't think that, uh, I'm not anything special. But I see greatness in every person around me, and especially people who are trying to pay attention and trying to get a sense of what's happening, and 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 not just just understand, you know, what's going on, but but actually, you know, step up and be an influence for good. A bringer of light is probably the the term I would use to describe what's needed. People who have the courage to shine light into darkness and to be the example for the other folks out there who are still trying to find their way. And trying to, to make sense of what's happening. That's not always easy. In fact, I want to start, to, I want to start to with, uh, this is just an email I got from Tom Woods yesterday. Right now, I, I see a growing, there's a growing clampdown on dissent. And we see it in big ways and small ways, but I mean, there's a push right now that is, is really remarkable. And here's one good example of how you will discover just how committed you are to your principles. Tom Woods, in his email he sent out yesterday, says, well, another weakling has let the mob intimidate him into a phony apology. Now, you may think, well, he's name-calling, but listen listen to what set the crowd off on this. Mark, I'm going to try his name a couple times here, Tykosinski, Mark Tykosinski, president of Thomas Jefferson University and dean of its medical college, just got in trouble for having liked 30 tweets from Alex Berenson. Now, if you don't know who Alex Berenson is, Alex is a well-known critic of the foolish COVID mitigation policies as well as the shots. So a reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer actually wrote an article about the tweets that an academic liked. That's 2023 America for you, says Tom. Now, for those of you who don't use Twitter, to like a tweet which is a state which in turn is a statement shared by a Twitter user, amounts to basically clicking a heart icon under the tweet. In other words, oh, cool, I'm acknowledging it. But even that, he says, dear friend, is not allowed. In 2023, as it's obvious that everything the dissidents ever said about COVID turns out to have been 100% right, we evidently still have to pretend the science was right about everything. Reporter Susan Snyder writes, a few of the hundreds of tweets that this uh, apparently this college president liked could be classified as legitimate scientific discussion about COVID vaccines, but many, however, represent controversial stances. Oh, no. Controversial stances, says Tom. You mean we might have a university president who doesn't just repeat meaningless platitudes and lazily parrot every elite obsession? Not allowed, citizen. By the way, he also liked to tweet opposing the genital mutilation of children, and a tweet linking to a Wall Street Journal article skeptical of the diversity religion. And we know there's only one permissible opinion on each of these things. But of course, instead of standing up for himself and telling the weirdos and censors to buzz off and stop trying to silence every last dissident on earth, Tykosinski pretended not to understand the significance of liking a tweet. Quote, I regret my lack of understanding of how liking a tweet is an implied endorsement. I also regret how my lack of understanding on the Twitter platform caused some to question my views on these complex issues. Oh, dude, that's that's so spineless. That's exactly what they want. You know, this is a, this is a it's a digital struggle session. Come and confess your crimes against the party. Confess your thought crimes. 
your anti-revolutionary activities. It's ridiculous. My point here is you're going to have to have thicker skin than that if you're going to stand up for what is true and what is right. By the way, uh, Tom points out Stanford's Jay Bhattacharya responds to this bizarre incident like this, saying, the more I think about this, the more absurd it seems. A reporter used her time and the authority of her publication to spy on what the president of a medical school likes on Twitter. Not posts, not even retweets, though that would also be absurd. That medical school and president responded by an abject policy for thought crime, or apology rather, for thought crimes. And he says, America's having a Maoist moment. Medical schools are an epicenter of an insane cultural revolution. I hope it ends soon. Tom Woods says, a Maoist moment indeed. And he asks, why don't more people resist? He says, I'm reminded of the anonymous FDA official who recently said, speaking of the COVID madness, that there are plenty of people around here who don't like what's going on, but they say they just need to stick it out until they reach retirement. Well, that about says it all. Isn't that something? A Maoist moment. And by the way, I know it sounds harsh. You may think, boy, Brian, you've really got a bone to pick with with medicine, but I think it's true. I think we are seeing our medical schools become the epicenter of this cultural revolution. Medicine has an, an immense impact on the economy. I can't remember what percentage of the economy, you know, the, the medical profession and it, it entails, but it's, it's a chunk. And when you have medical schools now focusing on hiring activists or on admitting activists, rather, more so than people who are serious about being healers, that's how you get this crazy stuff about, well, you know, this medical association, that medical association, we all agree that it's good to, uh, you know, mutilate these children who think that they're something that they're not. It's, it's crazy. And it's, of course, you know, hey, they're wearing a lab coat. They must know what they're talking about. I think uh, getting squared away with as much medical self-sufficiency as you possibly can is going to be a very good idea. And that's, I know, I, I can't pop in heart valves if one of mine goes bad. I don't have that kind of, that kind of knowledge. I can't even fix my own teeth. I don't have the, the dentistry skills. Might be a good idea, though, to start uh, making the connections <clears throat> to find those who haven't been corrupted by the Maoist medical establishment. And wherever possible, try to stay outside of their reach. Some of the stuff we've got going on here in Idaho is absolutely scary concerning the medical establishment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Boy, I feel like I'm kind of on the verge of a rant. And that just could be spring fever, but uh, I gotta—I have to admit, there there is one thing that just has has troubled me greatly. Starting with you know the COVID authoritarians who were so eager to lock people down and throw them in camps and deny them any place in society and fire them from their jobs and prevent them from shopping or being entertained or traveling or anything like that, and they did it. They advocated this. It's, it's the record is absolutely clear. Let them die. If they go to the hospital for emergency care and they're not vaccinated, let them die. I think it was just this last week I saw that there was a a lady in Georgia who was in line for a kidney transplant. 
and was denied a kidney transplant because, say it with me, she hadn't received the vaccinations. Now, I'm sorry, that that just strikes me as, as really, I don't know, manipulative, power hungry. And what's crazy is there are so many people who are apologists. Well, you know, it's her choice. She chose to die. It's her fault. I don't, I don't get where that mentality comes from, especially where there's now so many things have started to come to light where it's very clear. When we were told, trust the science, trust the official narrative in order to avoid so-called misinformation. All the stuff that was decried as misinformation, it turns out, was actually the truth. Not to sound too proud here, but a lot of us recognized that at the time. But I got a great article here. This is from uh, Tyler Durden at uh, Zero Hedge. Why are so many COVID authoritarians suddenly shifting their narratives? Tyler writes, in February of 2019, the White House under Trump established the position of chief medical advisor to the president. And the first person to occupy that position was a physician by the name of Ronnie Jackson. And his goal was to, or his job rather, was to advise Donald Trump on public health policy. Right before the initial outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic, Jackson left the post and it remained vacant for a year. Instead, the role was filled for the most part by Anthony Fauci, who did not become the next chief medical advisor officially until Joe Biden entered office. After numerous conflicts with Trump on policies and mandates, Fauci transitioned seamlessly into the new Democrat-controlled White House. Biden and Fauci were two peas in a pod. Now, Fauci's a figure with a controversial career in virology and medicine and the key official best known for spreading false claims that created nationwide hysteria over the HIV-AIDS virus. Why Trump brought him in as as an advisor and who recommended him is not widely known. In fact, opinions vary. What we do know is that the elevation of Fauci as a primary point of contact for COVID rules was disastrous for the country as a whole. Specifically, his prominence within the Biden administration brought America to the brink of medical authoritarianism on a scale that could have erased the Bill of Rights for good. Now, of course, Fauci didn't act alone during the march toward total societal lockdowns and perpetual vaccine mandates. He was just one bureaucrat among many that joined forces to spread fear and panic over a virus with an average official infection fatality rate of 0.23%. COVID was a non-threat to the vast majority of the population. And yet it was presented as if there would soon be bodies in the streets if Americans did not comply with every government demand. As if to acknowledge the ultimate failure of the pandemic narrative, though, multiple government officials have suddenly, and perhaps begrudgingly, started to back away from their original positions. However, instead of admitting they were wrong and apologizing to the public, they're trying to rewrite history and claim, well, they were actually against many of the measures and restrictions they implemented. Okay, for instance, in a recent interview with New York Times, Anthony Fauci made some surprising admissions on the mistakes made during the pandemic. Fauci tried to distance himself from the lockdowns and school closures as if he had no say or influence in how they were enacted. This is a quote from Fauci. When people say Fauci shut down the economy, it wasn't Fauci. The CDC was the organization that made those recommendations. I happen to be perceived as the personification of the recommendations, but show me a school that I shut down and show me a factory that I shut down. Never. I never did. 
I gave a public health recommendation that echoed the CDC's recommendation, and people made a decision based on that, but I never criticized people who had to make the decisions one way or the other. I'm sorry, just resisting the urge to say that lying sack of... Never mind. So here's the truth, and, and it's, a, it's actually included in the article. I hope you'll check it out. Fauci, this morning versus Fauci 2020. And it's a video of Fauci coming right out and saying what, uh, what, he, what he said. He hopes you'll ignore the blatant lies and adopt his new narrative because it supports your political bias. But if you're vaccinated, Brandon Taylor Moore says, I hope you choose what's true versus what you want to believe. Humanity depends on it. Now, Fauci also said in his interview um, with the New York Times, from a broad public health standpoint as the pop- at the population level, masks work at the margins. Maybe 10%. Okay, stop for just a sec. Maybe 10% of the time, he says, masks work. Let me put that in other terms. Let me put that in Brian's plain English. 90% of the time, they don't. Which is one of the reasons why I've drawn the firm line I've drawn. I won't put the mask on again. I won't do it. And it's not because I know what's best. It's because I'd rather not live a lie. I won't participate in a lie. All right, back to Fauci. He says, but for an individual who religiously wears a mask, a well-fitted K95, KN95 rather, or N95, it's not at the margin. It really does work. Oh, so now it does work. Okay. But he says, I think anything that instigated or intensified the culture wars just made things worse. And to be honest with you, David, when it comes to masking, I don't know. Yeah, that's information we could have used a couple of years ago. Here's the truth. Fauci changed positions multiple times on masks according to the political theater involved. Now, interestingly, his latest flip-flop has been published in tandem with multiple other officials who've also tried to adjust the optics surrounding their medical tyranny. Here's another good example. Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers and a member of the AFL-CIO, advocated for the forced shutdowns of U.S. schools for years despite extensive data showing the lockdowns were pointless. In fact, she threatened union strikes if schools were allowed to reopen. Now, she claims she'd been trying to reopen schools the whole time, saying, we spent every day from February on trying to get schools open. We knew that remote education was not a substitute for opening schools. And of course, Justin Trudeau. Sorry, I feel like I need to spit when I say his name. One of the more malicious leaders among Western nations when it came to COVID authoritarianism now claims that he never tried to force Canadians to get vaccinated. Now, keep in mind that Trudeau regularly spread propaganda associating anti-mandate protesters with racists and terrorists, while also arresting those who refused to submit to his lockdowns. Now he says, well, I never forced anyone to get vaccinated. There are potential side effects. Well, not forcing anyone, anyone to get vaccinated. I chose to make sure all the incentives were there to encourage Canadians to get vaccinated. Now, the reason these staunch advocates for limiting freedoms in the face of COVID are now acting defensively may be because the truth about the science on COVID is becoming insurmountable. Nearly every narrative that was originally promoted by government officials in the last three years has been debunked. So here are the realities of the mandates and the vaccines. The masks were never effective in stopping the spread of COVID, and mask mandates made little to no difference. Children were never at serious risk from COVID. School shutdowns made no difference in stopping the spread and did more harm than good. Economic lockdowns made no difference, doing more harm than good. 
There was never any evidence of hospitals in the U.S. being overwhelmed by COVID patients. In fact, hospital admissions fell dramatically in 2020. There's also evidence that the number of deaths associated with COVID were inflated by incidental COVID infections. In other words, COVID was blamed for deaths caused by other conditions. There is no such thing as COVID heart, heart failure caused by COVID. Vaccines do not stop the transmission of the virus. Unvaccinated or vaccinated people rather still die from the virus. Natural immunity is more effective than vaccines. The much hyped pandemic of the unvaccinated never happened. And yes, there's ample evidence of negative side effects, including heart failure associated with the mRNA vaccines. So to put it plainly, the narratives and the agenda have fallen apart in spectacular fashion. And now we have these officials, these authoritarians, trying to gaslight us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick invitation here. If you have not subscribed to my show notes, I would encourage you, please, check out my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Not only are all of the shows archived there, but you'll also find my show notes, which are chock full of great information for your consideration. What you do with that information, that's totally up to you. But if you'd like to subscribe, just click on the show notes, go to the bottom of the page. You'll see the subscribe button. Drop me your email. I will not spam you, but you will receive a once about once a day, Monday through Friday. You'll get an email from me with those show notes, which include the hyperlinks to the various guests and authors that uh, have something to contribute to your understanding of the world. Well, you know, the debt ceiling debate going on in the nation's capital right now is a fascinating study of how politics works. And I think I heard uh, the White House press secretary yesterday talk about how, well, it doesn't matter what's right or wrong. You know, we just we've got to raise the debt ceiling. It's got to happen. You know, in other words, uh, we have no choice but to keep digging deeper and deeper into the hole. And the, the crazy thing about it is. It's not going to solve any problems. It's just kicking the can down the road. And I saw this great article. Thanks to Ruben for sending this my way. This is from Brandon Smith from alt-market.us. Blaming conservatives for collapse. Damned if they do, damned if they don't, on the debt ceiling. Brandon's always got a good take on stuff, but I really liked his, his article here. He says, in 2021, I published an article titled, The Fed's Catch-22 Taper is a Weapon, Not a Policy Error, in which I outlined the deliberately engineered trap the Federal Reserve has created for the American economy. Specifically, I confronted the issue of strangled liquidity through increasing debt costs versus continued money printing and inflation. It's an issue that Jerome Powell warned about in 2012, years before he became Fed chairman. The consequences of creating a stimulus-dependent system and then abruptly cutting off the life support. As soon as he was installed as the head of the central bank, he implemented the very policies he predicted would cause a crash. And the result? Well, we just saw the beginning of the end with the latest banking crisis involving companies like Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic, and Credit Suisse. It's not just the U.S. finances, but banks around the world that rely on liquidity injections from the Fed to stay afloat. The central bankers addicted the system to cheap, easy debt 
Now they're taking away the drugs. In other words, no one can honestly argue that the central banks are ignorant or unaware of the threat. They know what's about to happen, and they do not care. But why does the establishment want a crisis now instead of five years ago or five years in the future? Well, he says, thankfully, much of the public is becoming aware of the various programs to introduce central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs. But what they may not understand is the manner in which such a massive economic change usually happens. Generally speaking, in order to institute a new economic system, the banks have to take down the old system. Now, the last time we saw this happen was just after the Great Depression and World War II. The deflationary crash and the war conjured the proper amount of global chaos, and before the dust settled, Western nations instituted the Bretton Woods Agreement in 1944, making the dollar the de facto world reserve currency while locking down the price of gold. They then established the Globalist International Monetary Fund, or IMF, the same year, and the United Nations in 1945. The world was centralized dramatically in a little over a decade. And he says, I believe we are fast approaching another engineered, engineered singularity, rather. A controlled demolition of existing systems to make way for a cashless society, a one-world currency, and global governance. And he says, I believe this because it's all the globalists can talk about these days. It's not as if they're trying to hide it anymore. The BIS and the IMF are actively fielding one-world digital currency mechanisms right now, structures that would combine all national CBDCs under one umbrella. In the meantime, globalist think tanks like the World Economic Forum are ranting excessively about the coming era of an AI-controlled economy and a fourth industrial revolution in which you will own nothing, have no privacy, and will be forced to adapt to a cashless socialist sharing system. All they need is a scapegoat to complete their crisis formula. War seems to work well in distracting the masses from the true culprit, culprits rather, behind any financial calamity. And numerous institutions are hard at work to convince the public that countries like Russia are to blame for ongoing stagflation problems. Now, of course, the stagflation crisis started well before the war in Ukraine. Many Americans aren't buying the spin. China, a dedicated partner to the globalist project, has shown consistent fealty to the IMF, and is a key player in the move toward a one-world currency system. Because they are the largest importer-exporter on the planet and have considerable leverage over the U.S. dollar, they have the ability to strike the final blow against the dollar's world reserve status. Brandon Smith says a heightened conflict with China would be a perfect cover for the dumping of the greenback, making way for the IMF's new global currency called the UMU, or Universal Monetary Unit. However, foreign conflagrations will not be enough for the establishment to keep the American public from scrutinizing the narrative. They need a domestic enemy, frightening threat, that lives right next door. That is to say, they need to find a way to blame conservatives and liberty activists for the impending crash they caused. Keep in mind that the Biden administration and the leftist media have been pumping out nonsense propaganda, asserting that all our fiscal problems, including our national debt, are somehow rooted in conservative policies. Okay, that's a load of road apples. At the bottom, the majority of our economic threats can be traced directly back to the Federal Reserve, as well as large international banks, and these institutions enact policy regardless of the political party that's in control of the government. But if we're going to talk about the political group that's most helped the central bankers set the calamity in motion, well, the Democrats win the prize. 
It was Barack Obama and and Joe Biden that doubled the U.S. national debt from 10 trillion to 20 trillion in the space of eight years. Trump didn't help matters and did not institute spending cuts at the level he should have, but the bulk of his debt contributions occurred because of the COVID response. Now, there are a number of issues to criticize Trump for, including the kinds of people he brought into his cabinet, but the current economic chaos is not rooted in anything Trump did. It was the Biden White House that pressed for COVID lockdown policies to stay in place for years, when they should have been ended within months as soon as it became clear the COVID virus was a non-threat to 99.8% of the population. Trump, or I'm sorry, Biden and the Democrats made it possible for the country to continue functioning without trillions in, in, in helico- COVID helicopter money, and it was those fiat measures that finally broke the camel's back. Prices on everything skyrocketed under Biden, not Trump. The majority of our national debt problems were piled up during the reign of the Democrats, and they continue to demand trillions more in spending without conditions. And this brings us to the debt ceiling. In the past, the debt ceiling has been a predictable farce. Republicans demand cuts, they haggle with Democrats who want a blank check, nothing's ever really resolved, and the debt ceiling gets raised again with no noticeable reductions in spending. In other words, it's all a show. The government keeps stealing from the American public at an exponential rate while also triggering more inflation, and it's a catch-22 for conservatives. No one in the mainstream can criticizes the Democrats for wanting to spend more because most people don't understand how inflation works. All the Democrats have to do is agree to reasonable budget cuts, but they refuse. When they don't allow cuts, the Republicans are either forced to cave in, which makes them look weak, or they're forced to stand their ground and be accused of reckless disregard for American debt obligations. The Democrats claim that any cuts to the budget will lead to economic crisis. They have no intention of negotiating to reduce U.S. debt. They don't have to. All the blame falls on conservatives regardless. Now, to be sure, there are multiple neocon politicians that support the Democrats at every turn, but there are also some Republicans trying to pull the country back from the brink. And Brandon says we should give these people credit. It's easy to accuse all political participants of being part of the false left-right paradigm, and maybe that was true 10 years ago. But he says, now I suspect this mantra is being exploited to divide conservatives and liberty proponents from any alliances at the government level. The leftist argument on the debt ceiling is essentially this. We must keep spending more to fix the problems created by spending too much. Eh, That sounds about right. It's a circular con job. Pursuing budget cuts is portrayed as an act of terrorism by the corporate media. Saving taxpayer money is considered evil, and conservatives who entertain the notion are painted as insurrectionists. Why is no one criticizing the Democrats in their all-or-nothing philosophy? After all, budget cuts can be made while also paying off the national debt, right? Well, the tactic makes sense if you look at it from a villain's perspective. All the Democrats have to do is not allow any cuts and continue to demand more spending without conditions. Then when the contingent of Republicans in Congress that actually care about fiscal responsibility refuses to back down, the White House, the media, and the majority of leftists initiate a propaganda wave, an artificial outcry suggesting that radical conservatives are destroying the economy. And if the conservatives give in, then the public blames them for bowing to the uniparty. If they don't, The establishment wraps up the stagflationary collapse and just lays it right in our laps. Yeah, they may try to force the issue of a debt ceiling impasse just to hide the crash that's happening anyway. His point is, the economy's crashing for a lot of reasons and none of them have anything to do with the government trying to spend less. 
but be very skeptical of whatever the official narrative is that's being proffered because chances are it's about as uh, false as can be. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for taking the time to uh, tune in and consider what uh, what I'm sharing with you today. I have no uh, pretense that I'm going to solve all your problems or I'm going to, you know, soothe whatever fears you may have. I hope I'm not feeding them, but I also hope that you're you're coming away with a sense that yep, we are we are entering a very pivotal time. And on the one hand, it's it's daunting, right? I I see potential for some incredible upheaval, the likes of which none of us have yet seen in our lifetimes. And this is consistent with that fourth turning methodology. It's happened before. We've seen our nation come through it, but it's, it's a scary thing. It's the kind of thing where, wow, it feels like the, the, very, uh, the very survival of the nation and our society hangs in the balance. And I don't think that's an, an overstatement to put it in those terms. But at the same time, isn't it exciting to know that you've got a front seat to, to history playing out? This is a time that's going to be talked about for many generations to come. And, and yes, uh, there will be some well-earned derision on the part of those who are analyzing this, saying, what the hell were they thinking? <laughs> what was that all about? So I guess the best you and I can do is try to keep our heads on straight and, uh, and just not get caught up in the, the propaganda, not get caught up in all the narrative management to the point that we stop thinking for ourselves. Now, to that end, I recommend some great uh, resources for wrong thinkers. I have really become enamored with Sasha Stone and her uh, Substack. Now, Sasha was, was a pretty hardcore Democrat, I, I gather, at one time. But uh, somewhere along the way, she has become red-pilled for the FBI who's listening here. And that's, yes, I used the term. That makes me a domestic terrorist. So, you know, make of it what you will. <clears throat> but she's an amazing source of clarity. And her latest essay, AOC and the Happy Fascists, wow. It is, it's a wonderful explanation of how dissent is being stamped out and, and it's a great uh, pulling back of the curtain on some of the people who are building our dystopian nightmare. She starts with a quote from Salman Rushdie. Free societies are societies in motion, and with motion comes tension, dissent, friction. Free, speakles, free people rather strike sparks, and those sparks are the best evidence of freedom's existence. Now, Sasha writes, last week, Democrats Chuck Schumer and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez locked arms with conservative media mogul Rupert Murdoch to silence Tucker Carlson off Fox News. Yes, the same side that once fought against the blacklist and for cultural icons like Lenny Bruce and the Red Hot Chili Peppers were now cheering on de facto censorship by an oligarch. What a change from the old left. The legacy press gathered in all their splendor at the White House Correspondents' Dinner luxuriating in an evening without fear of a Tucker Carlson monologue on Monday. That's some kind of power Carlson had. Let's shut him up before he does more damage by mocking the powerful. They were pretending that they had something to celebrate. Yet Biden was coming in with a catastrophic approval rating of 37% on Gallup. That's his lowest ever. The media were faring worse in an AP poll with a majority of Americans blaming them for dividing our country 
by 74%. Now, Sasha says, I can say with 100% certainty that it's true that each side sells hatred of the other side. I was taught to hate the right from the media on the left, and then I was taught to hate the left by the media on the right. She says, it's a daily battle for me to remember to humanize those I disagree with. But she also says, these are not two equal sides. The media on the left controls everything and is in everything, from social media users on Twitter to those who built the social media sites for all of Hollywood. Nearly every university and book publisher are sucked into the same fascist-like ideology. Now, she goes into an explanation here of fascism, taken from the Italian word fasci, which means individual sticks of wood bound together as one. So fascism, then, is the power of government, corporations, culture, and every major industry of power against the individual, by force, if necessary. Now, the right just doesn't have that kind of power, especially not the populist right. They're working-class citizens who've been abandoned by nearly every part of American life at the hands of the new elite class that has overtaken it. And she says, we don't yet know why Murdoch dumped Carlson, whether it was January 6th, Ukraine, the vaccine, Trump, or Big Pharma's grip on cable news advertising. But there's no doubt that Democrats supported it, as was evidenced by Joe Biden's mocking Carlson and Fox at the correspondence dinner. They love nothing more than a one-sided fight. They pretend to care about democracy. But what they really care about is preserving their fasci. That makes them happy fascists. It's fascism with a smile, intolerance dressed up in a lawn sign condemning hate, dressed up as love. It was bad enough when Charles Schumer barked at Rupert Murdoch from his powerful perch in the Senate. How dare the extreme MAGA Republicans give Carlson's team access to the January 6th tapes, which is information the public deserves to know. Like Audrey Hale's manifesto, which is still under the protection of the state because, of course it is. Schumer commanded Murdoch to shut Carlson down. There is no fighting in the war room. There is no democracy, no freedom of speech, no freedom of information, no disputing the official story in our people-run government. Now, Sasha Stone asks, who does Schumer think he is? A monarch? How dare he demand an oligarch to silence a journalist? How dare he prevent the public from knowing the truth about that day? Happy fascists know they have nothing to fear. They control the media, so they control the message. She says, Schumer, I have to believe, knows better. Sure, they have their ongoing crisis with Trump and January 6th, and woe betide anyone who takes away their precious. But what's AOC's excuse? CNN actually had a a clip on AOC's call for censorship a year ago. Now, Sasha says, in July 2020, I was already worried about AOC's public embrace and defense of cancel culture. What does that mean when a member of Congress says it on Twitter? Where will that go, I wonder? And she has a couple of receipts here from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. People who actually get canceled don't get their thoughts published and amplified in major outlets. This has been a public service announcement. She also tweeted, The term cancel culture comes from entitlement, as though the person complaining has the right to a large captive audience and one is a victim if people choose to tune them out. Odds are you're not actually canceled. You're just being challenged, held accountable, or unliked. Now, Sasha Stone says, look, any citizen, citizen activist can call for the deplatforming or cancellation of speech they don't like. It's gross, but it's not technically censorship. When a member of Congress does it, though, well, that seems to cross a line we didn't used to cross without pushback from the public. 
Now, she goes on about AOC and about, uh, you know, if, if AOC had the power to censor cable news host, does anyone think she would hesitate? She's granted herself unlimited freedom to say whatever she wants on television, in Congress, and on social media. Yet she has to silence others and deplatform them, deplatform them rather, because with happy fascists, it can only go one way. If you can control what people say, you can control what they think. If you can control what they think, you can control reality. So free speech is now harm. Harm is now impact, and intent no longer matters. Council culture is holding people accountable and censorship is deplatforming. Bottom line is, happy fascists can't risk allowing the public to decide for themselves. The only speech allowed is that which backs up but never contradicts their ultimate authority. When dissidents are banished to the outer regions, even on YouTube, Getter, or Substack, they're less of a threat than if they're descending on a large platform like Fox News. In taking control of the mainstream media narrative, they control everything from official policy in government to what they teach in schools to what they push in healthcare, and what major media figures get to say. This is how you get to Chuck Todd blindly accepting what activists have forced upon him regarding gender-affirming care. By the way, there's a great uh, clip of him and uh, Vivek uh, Ramaswamy uh, having the discussion about this. So here's a translation of one key paragraph from Joe Biden's speech to the press at the correspondence dinner. And this is the this is a masterful work of newspeak, sending all the right messages to the bootlickers in the press to make sure they're on point with what the Democrats will be selling. One of the uh, lines says, the truth matters. Translation, our narrative must be obeyed. As I said last year at this dinner, a poison is running through our democracy. Translation, we're the only people who get to decide what happens to this country our country, and parts of the extreme press, Fox News, but especially Tucker Carlson. The truth buried by lies and lies living on as truth. Translation, anyone who questioned the methods employed by our well-funded cabal on the 2020 election is a seditionist liar. How dare anyone question anything we do with our wealth and our lawyers and our ability to bury the truth by changing the words of things? Lies told for profit and power. Translation, anyone who questioned the methods employed by our well-funded cabal of the 2020 election is a seditionist liar. I sat in a basement. I didn't know campaigning. I didn't attend any rallies. Because, wait, I didn't do any. But I'm the leader of the happy fascists, and you will accept me as the one everyone wanted and voted for. No, it wasn't the usual election. But if you try to explain it or uncover any truth about what happened, you are liar! There's much more to this uh, commentary, but I'm telling you, it is worth your time to check out Sasha Stone's Substack. I would recommend subscribe. You won't be disappointed. She really creates some fabulous content. This is The Brian Hyde Show.